Welcome to Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. I have a business job and I have a strategy job and I work for a big corporation, but the art is everything for me, you know, everything. And, and I came up through creative side, I've learned the business side, but the art is everything for me. That's Rob Stringer, chairman of Sony Music Group and CEO of Sony Music Entertainment. Rob sat with me recently for a fireside chat in front of a live audience at NYU and shared his insights on a lifetime in the music industry. From his start, in his words, as an obnoxious little brat running around New York to see punk bands in the late 1970s and into the 80s, to now running the world's second largest music company. Rob took the helm of Sony's combined recorded music and music publishing businesses in 2017. He first joined the company at CBS Records as a graduate trainee in 1985, making him the rare executive that has worked his entire career within the same corporate family. Sony acquired CBS Records in 1988, and Rob worked in creative roles at Sony's Epic Records in London and Sony Music UK, and eventually moved to New York to head Columbia Records, the venerable home of Billie Holiday, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, ACDC, Pink Floyd, Beyonce, John Legend, and Pharrell. Rob's Columbia signings included MGMT, One Direction, and Adele before he was appointed to his current role. Rob was kind enough to allow us to record our chat, so stay tuned to hear about how growing up listening to the musical banquet of the BBC gave him a competitive edge, how his idol David Bowie once pulled a prank on him, on the primacy as an executive of focusing on artists and their art now as ever, and much more. Our conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the NYU Kimmel Center. Let's welcome Rob Stringer. Thank you for showing up, everybody, by the way. I'm very, very grateful you're all here. Apart from the second row, which looks like a cliched record company buy, normally there's always one row in a concert you go to. If you ever wonder why you're at a sold-out concert and there's a row of empty seats, that is always the record, the record company. company. And it drives me mad. And the next day I find out who was sitting there. And then I make them pay for the tickets. You take names. So that's probably our row, probably. Did you know that Brits are now running all three of the major music companies? What? <laughs> Not that anybody's counting. What was it about growing up in the UK that prepared you to be successful in the global music business? What was that? Well, if you're talking about the connection with the Brits, I, I think um, we all came at a time when technically the industry was on a downbeat. Um, and we all got the call, pretty similarly, to come and fix a downward trend in the, in the recorded music industry. And um, why that was, you know, I could lie and say it's coincidental, but I don't think it is coincidental. I think that what happened in the music industry, and particularly the record industry particularly, at the turn of the millennium, was that the business had started to go downhill. It had been a boom time for principally decades, and particularly in the 90s with the CD boom. And then what happened after that was when it started to go down, the record business was spinning on its axis and didn't know quite what to do. And I found, certainly when I moved here, which I didn't really consider till 
after I'd moved here, and if I'd known it, I might not have come, but, but everything was, was very, very genre-based. Everything was siloed, and the world wasn't becoming siloed. And, and so people had specific skill sets, but not necessarily wider skill sets. And they'd been very successful with those skill sets for years and years, but, but the world became a smaller place. Britain became closer to America, even culturally. But from my point of view, I believe it's pretty simple. When I grew up, I had the BBC, and I listened to BBC Radio, and BBC Radio played everything. And the reason it played everything is because it was a, it's a government-owned institution, principally, and they, play, they had a charter to play every kind of music. So if you're a Brit, as you Americans like to call us, um, if you're a British person, um, you end up hearing everything. You don't end up hearing just rock music. You don't end up hearing just pop or soul music or rap or, or heavy metal or whatever it may be. You hear everything. And at the start of the 2000s, with the decline of the recorded music industry in America, music shifted to digital. And iTunes was principally a mishmash of every kind of music on offer in a buffet. And I don't think it's coincidental that British music executives had an understanding of a cross-section of music. And so we were actually, in a weird sort of way, first of all, we, you know, we weren't prepared for the scale of this industry. I certainly, when I came here, wasn't prepared for the scale of what this industry was here. Um, and I, know, so. I, I know you're going to ask me on that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I'll come back to that. Okay. But it's like, but um, I shouldn't have said that because I knew your eyes lit up then, Larry. <laughs> but, but the process of understanding a cross-section was incredibly beneficial. And I listened to everything. I mean, Radio 1 and Radio 2 in Great Britain uh, played everything. So I would hear the Beatles, I would hear the Supremes, I would hear the Clash, I would hear uh, Public Enemy or whatever artist you'd like to say, I heard them all. And so I was, I was exposed to a wide variety of music from a very early age. And the second thing is, in Britain, pop culture is front and centre. It is absolutely front and centre of everything we do. If a record goes to number one in Britain, it's on the front page of a national newspaper. If you go to Glastonbury Festival, which everyone knows in my organisation is my favourite thing, and don't ring me during those five days. In fact, don't cause any problems, apart from Michael Jackson dying in 2009 during Glastonbury Festival. Um, don't cause any problems, because that is the, my favourite cultural event of the year. That's on the front page of national newspapers, and it's carried live on BBC One. That's the equivalent of Coachella being all day live on... NBC or something. It doesn't happen here. So, so that pop culture stood us in good stead to come here. Mm. But we didn't quite know what we would get when we got here, right. which is complicated. So talk about scale for a second. Yeah. I, yeah. About, well, uh, well, I mean, Britain's, you know, I mean, there's not any geography students here, really. Britain's a bit smaller than America. It's right. like, so it's, you can fit Britain into, someone will know what state you can fit Britain into. It's one of them. But the fact is that we had a almost like a cottage industry based on pop culture. So even though we're a small nation, pop music really going back to the, the Beatles. Jeff Jones, who runs the Beatles organization, is here with his wife, who's a professor here, and I, he made me mention the Beatles three times. So that's the first time, <laughs> is, that, is that pop culture starting with the Beatles you know, caused it to be incredibly important in, in, in Great Britain. Mm. You know, so, so we had an understanding of that process going back to that era. Um, coming here is a different level of, first of all, business scale, because the business was a jackpot. I was like from a cottage industry that produced good art. 
So, you know, I, you all have favorite artists, I'm sure, that include people from Britain. You know, I mean, it's like going back to the Beatles, as I said, you know, 70s, you know, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, 80s. Uh, George Michael and uh, Sade, 90s, you know, uh, goes on and on. You know, Oasis, Coldplay, whatever, whoever you like. But it's a small place, mm. you know, it's a small marketplace. So when you come here and you see that magnification of scale, it was incredibly daunting. I mean, it was a little bit frightening, actually, because I'd gone from, uh, from a, a, almost like a cottage industry where the art was good to a, to a scaled industry where, where the art was magnified to such an extent, it was sort of a little bit frightening, you know, and, and, and on the down tick as well, and, right. and going downwards in terms of business revenue, but with this scale operation that was built for much, much more success than, than the industry was having around 2005, you know. So, so that was a daunting task, and it took me five years to adjust, really. You had been coming to New York since really since the, the you know, when you were in college, yeah, right? Yeah. And I'm curious what the music scene was like in New York then, and how it was similar or different <laughs> from what you ha had back at home. Uh, well, I mean, New York was magical for me. I mean, I came here every summer from 1975 to I don't know when I graduated college, which was '85, and this place was magical. Mm. And and I, I spend a lot of Sunday afternoons with my wife wandering around places and I'm going, I'm sure I came to a record shop, Bleaker Bob's, I'm sure that yeah. was here. And I'm sure that, you know, was this where Max's Kansas City was? Because I was just an obnoxious little brat who just went, wow, this is a playground. And my favorite music of, as I come from the chapter of it really being when I was a teenager, punk rock was the, was the first movement that completely could involve me physically, not just audio wise, because I could go to the shows. Yeah. Punk rock, the, the, in my opinion, the best punk rock that influenced the best British punk rock came from here. So all around here, and Soho, and the Bowery, and all those places, you know, was the Ramones, Television, Talking Heads, um, Blondie, all these groups which I loved. And I believed in, in, the, in the art of those groups. And so coming here was incredible, because actually, in a weird sort of way, I had a head start on those groups, because I would see them in New York, and then I'd know they were going to be great and they'd go to England, and of course, again, because of the magnification of England, of pop culture, you would have Blondie playing at CBGB's on the Bowery to 60 people, and they'd play my hometown in England to 1,000 people within the space of a month. So that was incredibly exciting. So when I came here, I was able to see these groups early, and, and you know, there, was, there was fanzines here. There was a great fanzine called the New York Rocker, which yeah. was amazing, <laughs> I mean, amazing. I mean, like almost like a new musical express for, for America, which was edited by people who went on to do very great things in, the, in journalism, the music business. But, but that was my music, and I saw every one of those bands. In fact, I read my favorite books to read on the history of music are the era of American music in this town between 70 and 80. Because, and there are a lot of books. Debbie Harry just put her autobiography out this week, which is an incredible tapestry of how it was to live in the Lower East Side and, you know, and areas which were not as nice as they are now. You yeah, know? So, right. so, so, that, so that, was my, that was my influence. And if you look at what happened, the Clash were influenced by the Ramones, the Clash were influenced by Patti Smith, you know, and they were all from, as it happens, 10 blocks from here. You know? so, so that was my first thing where I knew this was for me. I knew that whatever happened, this was my passion and this was the, the, probably at the detriment of my academic work, this was the thing I cared about most. During the time when you were running Columbia Records, yeah. 
There's a, there's a story that involves uh, you, Daft Punk, and David Bowie. The first artist that had an effect on my life was David Bowie. David Bowie is the most influential artist to come from Britain, apart from the Beatles, and, and was really, really dramatic. And, um, and so anybody who grew up in the 70s, David Bowie, right through from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, was the most influential British artist. Changed my life for what it's worth. Well, that's good, because he changed a lot of people's yeah. lives, and especially actually changed a lot of people's lives in New York as well. But um, that process was that it came full circle, and I got to work with him on the last three records of his career, and particularly got to work with him on the last two, where I was the point person for his art in the company, which was an incredible privilege, and you know, I, I, this is a nice job, and it's wonderful, and I like my job, and I like all the accolades that go with it, but the truth is what I'll remember when I stop this job is I spent time in a studio with only three people in the room, and David Bowie playing me music, and that is hard to think. So anyway, so we got on pretty well. And, uh, and he wrote, and, and I had some thing in England, some uh, thing for being old and still around, and um, he wrote a surprise paragraph about why it was important that, and why I deserve this award. And he tied it up to everything from my past, from, from my hometown, straight through to Daft Punk, and said that I played cymbals or something on Daft Punk and everything. <laughs> was and it true? No, none of it was true. He made most of it up. He made me look great, so I was OK, okay about it. It was all right. But, uh, <laughs> but, but no, that, that process was that, that was that was a complete surprise. And that was, a, that was a, for me, if I took that paragraph, that could be on my career tombstone and that would be enough you know mm. that would be fine because i wouldn't want anything else than that because as i said my i have a business job and i have a strategy job and i work for a big corporation but the art is everything for me you know everything and, and i came up through creative side i've learned the business side but the art is everything for me and i you know my job now is to work with younger artists as well as the iconic artists and the younger artists are as important to me as the iconic artists because who knows what someone will turn into that we find today in 10 years' time. So, so you know, that, that link to that standard of craft is vital for me, you know. So much about the way that music is created and discovered and consumed is different, but some things aren't. Nope. What's not different? Ooh, talent's not different, you know. I mean, its it, it circumstances have changed. I mean, you know, the the how, for instance, music was crafted in New York in 1976 in, in squats and in, in apartments, in lofts and all that kind of stuff. That's not possible now. But it is created in the bedroom with a laptop mm. and it is created in a, in a, much, in a much different form. And, and I think, you know, look, I mean, the talent thing is, uh, as I've got older, I've worried less about some aspects of the, of the stuff I do and more concerned with how talent is tantamount to everything. And it surprises me on a regular basis. Talent hasn't changed. Mm. You know, I, I went with uh, actually my wife and my daughter to Spain at last summer, and I was in a reception for our Spanish company, and I asked them to bring whoever they wanted to bring, and I would meet anybody in the, in the room. And a girl walked in wearing flamenco costume, mm. and she was strikingly different to any, anybody else in the room. And I asked to listen to her music, and they showed me the video, and it was one of the best things I'd seen in a long, long time. And that girl was Rosalia, mm. who I'm sure many of you know now, and I'm sure, you know, if you don't know, I'm telling you she's very special, but, she, but, but that came from nowhere. And she is as unique 
as any artist I've ever worked with. Mm. The same way as Adele is as unique as any other word, the same way as a Travis Scott is as unique as anybody else, the same way as Beyonce, whoever, mm. whoever it may be. And that doesn't change. And if someone's that good, it doesn't matter whether it's vinyl or whether it's iTunes or whether it's streaming, those artists will cut through. Mm. And, and I believe that, and, I, and I'm, you know, it's very nice for me to, have a, you know, to, have a, to be able to look after a, a company that is a gateway for that talent, but those, those artists get through. They find a way, and that hasn't changed at all in 60, 70 years. Sony is in a bunch of different businesses. You know, clearly there is a proud history in the electronics business. They have a, an important film and TV production company and a bunch of other businesses. How is it different running Sony Music than you imagine how it might be for your counterparts at Universal and Warner? Well, when I grew up in the business, there was so many labels, and they were, they were pretty much run by, a lot of them were run by entrepreneurs. You know, the, the, the guy who ran Island Records, Chris Blackwell, he signed Bob Marley, and Herb Albert and Jerry Moss signed the Carpenters and, you know, and the police, and, and, it, and it was run by entrepreneurs, and slowly but surely they got, they got emerged into a much bigger, bigger structures. And that is different, because that, that was the early sort of formation of what the record industry was, and it was, it was full of entrepreneurs. And, and then the corporations built value from those smaller companies, and the next thing you know, you've got only three left, and the three left is really you know, down to the, the recession in the record industry 20 years ago. And we have very different corporate parents. I mean, Vivendi, who runs Universal, is a French company, French media company. Warner's is run by a, a, a Russian industrialist. Mm -hmm. And we're run by a Sony, a Japanese technology company. So that is different. I mean, that's, that's not the same. I'm pretty sure the, you know, some of the meetings I have with my, um, my uh, bosses and board in Tokyo are very different to the conversations that my friends at Universal might have in Paris or New York, where Lem Blavatnik of Warner's is, you know, is based. So it is different. Um, what the skill sets are is, is, um, is something unique. I mean, we are, as you said, run by a very, very famous technology company. And obviously, we strive to merge technology to some degree with the art of music and film and games, because obviously PlayStation is one of our brands. And we are working much harder in this chapter to build that story, because it's fine saying there's three majors, but that isn't it. The three majors are just looking at companies at the scale of Apple and Amazon and Google. And those are our partners in in, the, in business, so you know, not only do we have our parent companies on the one hand looking at the scale of what we have and looking at the business, but we also are, are looking at giants, giants of business, which mm. certainly my predecessors 40, 50 years ago did not face. It was a, there was a recorded music business and there was lots of people in the recorded music business. Now we are partners with the big, some of the biggest corporations in the world and that's a very different landscape. One of the things that has changed in recent years is the pace of signing and releasing things. Mm -hmm. What is different today when the time scale is compressed between signing and releasing relative to you know, what may have been the case, say, 10 or 20 years ago? Well, I mean, that's completely different. I mean, there are 40,000 tracks a day uploaded to Spotify. Right. And just by sheer math, we have to have a bigger proportion of that 40,000 
than we would have done last year, five years ago, ten years ago. You know, in a, in a strange sort of way, we controlled the pathway up until ten years ago, fifteen years ago. And therefore, we controlled the flow of repertoire. With the advent of digital and streaming, we don't, we don't have distribution now. We used to own CD plants and making plastic discs, and we used to have distribution depots, and we had thousands of people doing that. We don't have those people at all now, because the distribution is done by, as I said, much larger digital partners. So, so that's changed incredibly. Um, I, I don't mind that, because I actually think it puts it, the pressure back on the creative. And the pressure back on the creative is to find the best out of the 40,000. Mm. So if there are 40,000 downloadable tracks a day, you know, we'd like to take the best of those tracks, and I'm sure my competitors are exactly the same. And obviously, the number's going up, but quantity's got to be matched with quality, mm. because there's no point in signing a 1,000 acts a day, or a 1,000 records a day, and 977 of them aren't very good. You know, it's right. like, I mean, 40,000 tracks a day, they're not all gonna be good. I don't think so anyway. I mean, it's like, I'll try and listen to 40,000 tomorrow, but I think that, but I think that the process is, it's like sifting for gold a little bit now mm. because, because we do have a huge amount of data. We do have a lot of people in data analysis. But, you know, you'd like to think that greatness comes to the top somehow still because 40,000 tracks is a lot of music, you know, mm. and as I said, it can't all be of top-notch quality. Right, and so there's more music being signed and released, mm -hmm. and yet the cost of signing things, especially good things that, for which there is a competitive situation to sign, has gone up, and in some cases it's gone up a lot. And yet, your operating margins are fantastic and increasing. How do Don't you do feel that? sorry for me at this point. This isn't the sad bit of the, <laughs> of the conversation. This is okay. This this bit's all good. So so that yeah. I mean, it, look, uh, it's five times as competitive as it might have been many decades ago because there's that much demand. And obviously, I'm sure that when you teach the economics of this business, Larry, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of money, but there's a lot of people who want a segment of that money being thrown off by the recorded music industry. So you know, the pressure hasn't changed. It's, you know, it's, 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 in fact, it's more intense. You know, it, it's, it's a deeper analysis now of how we can make that money Everything has got more expensive in the last three months, never mind the last three years. Everything, arguably, has got more expensive in the last three weeks. But, um, <laughs> I mean, literally. I mean, but the fact is that there are new benchmarks, but there are setting new benchmarks for the amount of revenue we're receiving from the global market. So the revenue is going up. You know, our revenue isn't solid and just flat. Our revenue is going up. Our profits are going up. Our margins or at least our margins are getting better, and um, market share is more competitive than ever. Mm. So it's all a balancing act and everything. And, you know, I mean, as I said, what it, I'm sure everybody, lots of people in this room have, uh, have got tracks on playlists on Spotify or Apple or, 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 or listen to things on YouTube that, that are unheard and unsigned. And in a weird sort of way, with the advent of the digital landscape, everyone's an A&R person, everyone. Anybody can discover something tell 10 friends, you tell 100 friends, you tell 1,000 friends, and next thing you know, you have something different. I mean, you know, the latest phenomenon is TikTok, which mm. is, is breaking records on a daily basis. We have Little Nas X, which we signed from TikTok. 
we have an artist we've just signed called Arizona Zervas, mm. who is also a very big record started on TikTok. But that's just the beginning. And those artists don't want only to be on, you know, on one platform. But the, the measurement techniques are deep and, uh, and dramatic now because records are breaking from any corner of the digital landscape. And you know, we need to be on top of that. And of course, it would be obvious, we're not the only ones doing that. I mean, right. it's like, it'd be wonderful if, there was, you know, if it was that simple, but there's a lot of people looking for this stuff. And it's very much, I'm sure you're gonna to talk to me about this, but it's very much a global business now. So hits can come from anywhere in the world, you know, so. And they do. And they do, yeah. Yeah, we've got, I mean, I was, uh, we did a conference recently and, and we played records that had been number one on Spotify in new markets in 2019. And it was the most different musical film I'd ever seen. Wow. You know, I mean, we have BTS from Korea. Who would ever say that BTS, uh, a Korean K-pop app, would have a number one in America and sell out? City Field, and then we have a dance record from Lithuania, which has mm. been big, and we have a kid from Norway called Alan Walker, who has sold three billion streams in China. Wow! You know, so the statistics are mind-boggling, and the walls have come down. And we used to control those walls, and we don't now. And I don't mind that. I, I like the fact that music can come anywhere. I like the fact the world's a smaller place, but of course, it's incredibly complex in the amount of music that's traveling. So, so my job is to try to find out what's traveling well enough that we can expand on that. You, know, you were talking before about data, mm -hmm. and of course uh, there's more data than there ever was about music, and you know, before you sign something, there's a data trail, and yet data doesn't exactly mitigate the no. risk of signing something that's new, does it? No, the, there's an obsession in the record business with edge through data now. So if you can find it something like an hour before someone else, maybe you can make the phone call to the artist first. I mean, that's, that's existed forever. I mean, you know, someone would play a record in Kansas on an R&B station mm. and it would respond well and they'd get seven phone calls back and the person who knew the radio programmer in Kansas would hear about that record getting seven phone calls because mm. it used to be phone calls to the station. So it's, it's the same, it's, it's not dissimilar, but the fact is now that we have tracking that goes down to pretty minutia-based data. But, you know, that isn't it. I mean, I want, I mean, I, I'm purist enough to want to find fantastic artists, you know, and find people that actually, data's fine. If data means something, that's great. And if it means, but I also don't want data where we have one song and then five months later I'm standing in a club or in the Mercury Lounge and, and we go, oh no, this act isn't very good. Because mm. that's not fair on the act either. I don't, I, I don't want to be, I want to be involved in the artist's life. I don't want to be just involved in data and some songs and some, some computer information and tell me that actually that worked. That's not my goal at all. I mean, obviously records work like that, but the fact is that the best of both worlds is ideal, that we use data to find great, great artists, you know, and, we, and look, we do, you know, it's, it works. I mean, some records come from out of nowhere, but some records take a minute. Mm. You know, not every artist was discovered in two minutes on, a, on an Instagram account. That's not, that's not how it works. Some artists come up from surprising places that we never expected. So, so yes, data is a very, very important part of our business, and it is really to do with competition. That's very, very important we have that analysis. But also, as, uh, as I know you're aware, it saves us money because we can target our audience so sure. we can find people with that data we can say we know these people are going to like this music and that's super helpful you know so much has been made about the value of 
music companies and music assets this year, and uh, you know we're going through this period where the value of uh, almost anything at scale, or certainly anything of quality, is going at very high multiples. Mm -hmm. In the mid-2000s, Sony Music had a joint venture with BMG, Sony BMG, and when Bertelsmann exited that business, Sony bought what was the, 50%, yeah. the, the old BMG, yeah. unrelated to the new BMG, for those of you who might be working in the new BMG. How does that deal look today? Well, I, I remember you came in, you were absolutely shocked when you talked to me about general strategy, and when you were telling me how much fun I must be having and how great it was now, and I said, actually, that chapter, I didn't mind, because first of all, we were underdogs, and I liked being the underdog. I thought that was great, because everyone thought we were useless. So we just went and sort of bunkered ourselves down and found new ways of building our business up, and no one was really that bothered about buying music rights, really, in that era. So, you know, we merged with BMG, we had a, uh, an ability to purchase 50% of BMG. That money was already in cash flow of our company. It was a lot of money by the context of money, but it wasn't a lot of money by terms of value. And 10 years later, that value is 10 times multiple, mm. at least. So I liked that period because I could buy chunks of companies for the best part of a tenth of their current value. And also the other thing about that era is that no one, you know, we could find artists and we could develop them without necessarily everybody being overexcited or could be concerned with how long it took. You know, we didn't break a Dell in one month. You know, we were able to build a Dell as a story because it was a gradual process. Now there's much more of a magnification because everybody wants to be back in the recorded music business. And How about that? I know, it's like, it's, it, you know, and now there are thousands of people flooding in to, to hopefully grab a piece of that, that business. And 10 years ago, when we completed the purchase of BMG, and probably the same time as when Universal bought EMI and Warner's bought Parlophone and, and, and those chapters, the, um, there wasn't hundreds of buyers. Mm. You know, we were able to, we knew what we knew, a lot of people didn't think we knew very much, but we knew what we knew about our business and we were able to condense our companies into much more scale, quite honestly, without too much fuss. Mm. I like that, that period. A little different today. A <laughs> little different today, yeah. yeah. You ever feel like you're operating you know, under a microscope today? Right. The way that there's so I much I thought you were going to say, do you ever feel old? I thought that was a good answer. No, answer. I wouldn't have. Frequently. Friday <laughs> afternoons about five o'clock, Larry. <laughs> Yeah, yes, I do. I, I, I feel that every day. Um, never mind the fact that you know the digital landscape reports everything, and, and every, nothing's ever behind closed doors to the same extent. Right. Yeah, I do feel that, and, and I and I also feel that even though we have scale in our own business, it's not the same scale as a as a Google or a, or an Apple. So the scale is all relative. It's not the same level. So and I don't want to like carry it away with ourselves like we did before. We're not going to do that again, or I'm not anyway. We're going to go to your questions in a minute, uh, but first I want to ask Rob, there have been any number of digital disruptors, however you want to describe them, who have entered the business. Some of them are the distribution platforms that we rely on now today. Mm -hmm. Others are companies who have entered the business like Cobalt, for example, who didn't have a big you know, legacy business to transform it, and they disrupted the business in other ways. 
What's been the effect of the new entrants who were born as digital companies in terms of how Sony Music or any of the majors have now needed to operate? Well, it would be, particularly if you consider the previous chapter that I just described where we came from, you know, I think we shed a lot of arrogance and, and I think we were humble and ready to learn again. And um, I would not remotely not the digital partners for what we've learned with them. I mean, Cobalt has a very interesting transparent model. We have a much more transparent model than we did two years ago, never mind 10. And we've learned from our competitors and we've learned from the digital platforms about how to run our business. So, so I, I, I will never ever be able to run a, a fixed industry model now. It's always gonna be evolving. It's always gonna be being different. And I have to adapt monthly, never mind annually or, you know, or every five years. I have to adapt regularly our business model as a, as a whole company with my team you know, to be flexible to, to the model. And like I said, you know, we didn't know that TikTok which is a, you know, a company that was originally based in China that would break records even a year ago. And now we're breaking records because of a platform that young music consumers love. So I would never uh, be able to say that we could stop learning. Maybe there were chapters in the business that you could rest easy for five to 10 years, but not now. It's, it's moving at the speed of light now. And, and you know, there'll be, you know I'll, we could be get very comfortable about one particular segment of our business and the next thing you know, it's gone. You know, and I don't really want to be in that position again. So I've got to be pretty flexible. And we've got to have a lot of people looking at a lot of different solutions to, to build that. Unfortunately, we're able to do that now because the business is buoyant. Fair enough. Let's go to your questions. Does anybody have a question for Mr. Stringer? A student asked about a program Sony has called Diversity Week and what Sony does to make diverse employees, creatives, and business people feel welcome. I mean, actually, it's the front and centre of our company as, uh, as A&R should be. It's as important. Because if we get people right and we get the balance of how our company philosophy is, then we will find better music. So it's totally connected. We have hundreds of programmes. And we have a huge global resource programme based on everything you would hope we would have. Uh, because, f first of all, music is diverse and music comes from the most, as I said, music comes from every country in the world now. You know, we, are, we, we have to be an ambassador for every element of how to behave properly. Um, and the fact is that, 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 as I said, you know, our people, if we have our people with the right understanding of who we all are, then, then I honestly believe we'll have better art. So, so it's completely connected. And, and I don't think any company who, who's in the art world in the business of, of entertainment can be anything but now. So, so yes, I mean, that, this is an ongoing thing and we're never perfect. You're not gonna be a perfect corporation with 5,000 employees. You have to, you have, again, you have to adapt, but I think you'd be, you know, if you spent a few weeks looking at that in our company, you'd be, you'd be, pretty, you'd be pretty positive. There was a question on the operations of Sony Music in Nigeria and the company's expansion plans in Africa. Oh no, the, the African content is, the, is one of the big, I mean, I, we, took, we didn't really touch on the emerging markets now. I mean, right. the emerging markets of, uh, of, of all the Goldman Sachs and those, those banks all have huge amounts of their growth from the emerging markets. And Africa is incredibly important. One, because it's a huge continent that has a huge population. And secondly, because music comes from uh, Nigeria that, that actually travels the world. Funnily enough, one of our best a &R people is, is from Nigeria and has unique taste that was, you know, has a huge basis in Nigerian music. Um, we, have, we have an office in Lagos now. We have, 
We have a, a link that's much more dramatic, every major label does now, um, partly because the music is, you know, can connect up. If you look at where music connects up in, for instance, France, it's French African music from Senegal and Sierra Leone, and it's rap music from those continents. If you, if you keep translating that process, it ends up that arguably Africa is one of the new centers of popular music. So, so from that point of view, we, in fact, I have a meeting on Monday to go over a deck about a, a new business venture in Africa, and we spend a lot of time on that continent. I mean, you know, there are other, every continent has a blossoming music story, but Africa is, um, is kind of uniquely linked to the, to the growth of, of, of particularly urban music and R&B music in Europe. So, so it's a very, very important uh, continent for us. Developing markets are as different from each other as they, they are, are from developed markets. How do you develop a bespoke strategy for each market that you enter? Uh, well, it starts with A&R. I mean, I, I, you know, uh, I would have never said, I mean, the statistics we look at on a regular basis where you suddenly say the top 10 records in Spotify so far in Brazil are all Brazilian. Mm. The top 10 records in Italy so far this year are all Italian. The top 10 records in you know, Latin America, um, virtually eight or nine out of 10. So we have to have a pretty diverse strategy. I mean, it's like, you know, we didn't have offices in some of the markets we have offices in now. We didn't have A&R people in Estonia, or we didn't have A&R people in uh, Peru. Mm. But the fact is now we do, because um, in a weird sort of way, the world's got smaller, but it's also got more local at the same time. So, so it turns out on streaming platforms that that Spanish people like listening to Spanish music. And, and yes, there are big records that break from, uh, from, you know, there are big records that break internationally and everybody knows what those records are, the big global hits. But there's a lot more regionalization of music now. And it's ironic, really, because you, you think, you know, global platforms, global distribution networks, and then local music is, you know, I mean, there is, an, there is a form of hip hop and rap in every market in the world now. There is Russian hip-hop, which is different to French hip-hop, which is different to Philippine hip-hop. I mean, it's remarkable. And, and it's obviously now one of our expansion plans is to be everywhere, mm. as practically as possible. And let's go to maybe one more question. There was a question on the challenges on achieving synergy across the global company in technology. Very difficult. Um, you, you have to bear in mind you have, I don't know, in, my COO is sitting there and he'll remember every stat on this. I mean, how, in 2000, how many people would you have in the company, Kevin? 2000? 15,000. In 2000, we had 15,000 people. Now we have 5,000. So the challenges are that you shift the emphasis. And even from the point where we've had a very stable headcount for the last 10 years, so we had 5,000 people, we've had to adjust those 5,000 people. You can't have five, you know, 1,000 people in physical sales and then say, right, we're going to keep you in physical sales forevermore when actually there's no physical sales going to be in the marketplace in five years' time. So we've had to adjust enormous numbers of our workforce to, to meet the challenges of the new chapter. The things that, that are important, I mean, obviously, you would see the same as me. You know, we need data and analysts, so we need a lot of skill in data analysis, and we, need a lot, we don't need manufacturing skills anymore, so we replace manufacturing skills with maybe data analysis. But my opinion is, with the, with the loss of distribution and manufacturing, we needed a much bigger percentage of people with creative talent in our company, someone who would be able to understand why something was special. So we have shifted the percentage of our company up in the last two years to a much greater percentage of, 
artistry and people who would understand art at the same time by shifting the people without increasing the headcount if we could. Um, because headcount is always a, you know, it, when a company starts doing badly, the first thing that goes are the people. So you might drop 10% of your workforce if things aren't going great. So we had to readapt probably half our workforce, probably 50% of our workforce to have new skill sets to meet the next chapter. And that's really not easy because some people are wonderful human beings but may be too late for them to change or don't want to change. And, and so it becomes a tough people management problem, but you don't have a choice because otherwise the business moves without you. Let's thank Rob Stringer for spending time with us here tonight. Thank you for having me this evening. This has been fun. Thank you very much. The Musonomics Podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. Special thanks to Kevin Kelleher and Amanda Collins at Sony Music for their assistance with the event and this recording. Production assistance this episode from Nakul Sharma of the NYU Steinhardt Music Business Graduate Program and Laurie Jacobson at Jaybird Communications. If you like what you heard on this episode of Musonomics, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute, and it's so important in helping new listeners find our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Musonomics. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can find our contact information on musonomics.com. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening.